Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. And this morning, we are the sixth Sunday of Epiphany, which happens this year to be the next to last Sunday of the Epiphany. Next week will be, obviously, then the last. And then we'll go to Ash Wednesday uh, shortly after that. And we'll be in Lent then for the next six weeks. So we've got to get in all our hallelujahs, as we talked about a little bit earlier. We've got to get them all in the next two weeks because then we're prohibited from doing that by our uh, church calendar until Easter. So what we're looking at today on this sixth Sunday after Easter is we started with a psalm, and the psalm was uh, 119, verses 9 through 16. Psalm 119 is an ode to the law set in 26, or 22, sorry, 22 different um, ver- uh, sets of eight verses. And the reason that it's 22 is each one of those 22 is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so David is writing an ode to the law and he takes the alphabet and he begins every one of those with that letter of the alphabet and then does eight verses on how wonderful the law is. That's not the way most of us feel with respect to the law, but David had a deep understanding that this is for my good. So what we did was we read verses 9 through 16, which is the Hebrew letter bait, which is the second letter of the alphabet, Aleph being the first. So read those verses, and then we read from a book called Ecclesiasticus, but it's also called The Wisdom of Ben Sirach, S-I-R-A-C-H. And I'll link that in the podcast today, and it's Ecclesiasticus verses 15, or chapter 15, verses 11 through 20. And then 1 Corinthians 3, or uh, 1 to 9, where Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. I'll speak more about this, but he's speaking to the Corinthian church because there's, there are factions within the church between he and a, another Christian preacher called Apollos. And I'll mention a little bit about who Apollos is. So anyway, he's, he's trying to say, don't be, don't be divided between two men. Be focused on Jesus. So, so to the extent I say something important or valuable, then listen to me if it's about Jesus, if, so long as it's true. If Apollos does, then do the same. But in all of that, glorify Jesus, not either me or Apollos. And then we read more of the Sermon on the Mount from um, Matthew 5, verses 21 to 37. And it's topically, Jesus is talking about angry. Don't be angry with your brother because you've committed murder in your heart at that point. And then he goes on from there to talk about lusting in your heart and that you've already committed adultery if you do that. Then he speaks about divorce. And we might have a little bit to say about that one. Um, And then at the end, he says, don't take oaths at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that's the the, the, uh, scripture that we're dealing with today. And so I started thinking about this whole idea of when Jesus is is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he's not doing it into um, a vacuum, really. I mean, there's what you need to understand is the uh, sort of some principles of Jewish interpretation of scripture. Uh, what is the, the hermeneutic is the, you know, the big word that you use in seminary. But what it really means is what's your approach to understanding scripture. And so at that time, there were two very distinct and only two, that's really important to say, distinct ways that, that the Jewish people, particularly the rabbis, and, and as the rabbis went, so went the people. There were two distinct ways in which that that there was understanding of scripture. And so at the time of Paul, Paul tells us that he studied under a particular rabbi. 
he studied under Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, we also know that Gamaliel was, was not just a rabbi. We know that he was also a Pharisee. And he was the head of the council because in uh, Acts 5, Paul and, oh, not Paul, uh, John and Peter have been arrested and they've been taken to the council and, and in deliberations about what to do with these two men who are preaching this Jesus thing. Finally, Gamaliel's voice is the one that's heard and the one that, that carries the day. And, and essentially what he says is, is to say, hey, here's the way to look at this. We've had other people come and they've done this, that, and the other thing. It, it lasted for a time and then it just kind of went away. And so it, it was a man. And so if this is just another one of those things, there's nothing to be gained from fighting this because it'll ultimately just go away. But if it's not, if it's actually of God, do you want to be on the side of not God? So let's just let them alone and we'll see how this goes. So Gamaliel's voice carried the day. Gamaliel was like, again, he was Paul's rabbi. He's the one that... that raised Paul up. And that 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 house under Gamaliel actually goes back to his grandfather. That 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 house is what it was called, was the house of Hillel. And Hillel was as I said, it's Gamaliel's grandfather. So it that that side is sort of characterized by humility and gentleness towards all people. All people. <laughs> Whether they be Jews or non-Jews. So Jews and Gentiles alike had a place within that. Gamaliel was, a, was an extraordinary uh, follower, but he, he was strong in his own right. He was called a prince and a master or the ruler of the people. He was the head of the Sanhedrin. So, I mean, when you're talking about this, when you, when you look at the Sanhedrin, they're going to be divided most of the time between followers of Hillel, Gamaliel's grandfather, and this other house called Shammai that I'll talk about in a little bit. But to give you some background on, on on Gamaliel and Hillel for two reasons. Why I'm going to emphasize that side over the Shammai house side. And that is Gamaliel's house ends up carrying the day in, in Judaism and the house of Shammai. You don't see anything called Shammai within Judaism today, but you do see houses of Hillel, houses of learning and teaching all over the world. And so that one carried the day in Judaism, not for the next little bit after Jesus's death, but after that, it became the dominant uh, form of rabbinic Judaism that perseveres into today. So there, it, it's good to know something a little bit, of, at least about that house that Gamaliel comes from. Like I said, he was considered a master. He was the, the head of the Sanhedrin at this point. And so everything within Judaism is kind of taking on the character of Gamaliel, because if you're head of the Sanhedrin, then ultimately your point of view prevails in all things. So, so Gamaliel was an authority on questions of religious law, and when he died, it, it was said of him that um, whence, when Gamaliel the elder died, there's never been more reverence for the law, and purity and piety died out at the same time. That was how great he was considered in Judaism at the time. So, but what he had done is take on the mantle of his grandfather, of Hillel. And it was the, characterized by this deep humility towards things and a willingness and an openness towards other people. And so the, the Shammai side was characterized, obviously, then by sort of the opposite. <laughs> Arrogance might be too strong a word, but not by a whole lot. 
and an openness towards outsiders. Oh, no, 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 no. not at all. That, that ends up being sort of the Maccabean line, the ones that are revolting against uh, Rome, want nothing to do with Rome. And at one point, uh, after they became ascendant in the Sanhedrin, after Gamaliel's death, they became ascendant, and, and they prohibited Jews from buying anything from non-Jews. So it's, it's that sort of nationalistic sort of fervor uh, that, that characterized them. The, the other thing that sort of characterizes uh, Hillel's teaching, according to Jews today, is that at one point, a, a would-be convert comes to both these men, Hillel and Shammai, because they're at the same time, comes to each of them and asks one question. And that is, is that what is the most important thing if you could summarize Judaism in one, but while I stand on one foot, and as I get older, I can do that a lot shorter period of time. But the, they ask, if, I need you to explain this to me. And if you can do that, then I'll consider becoming a convert. And Shammai looked at him and said, go away. You're a problem. That's stupid what you asked. And so Hillel on the other side looks and says, all right, how about this? <clears throat> that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That's the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. Go and learn. And so the man became converted. He took him seriously, took this seemingly ridiculous question seriously, and then said, that which is hateful you do not do to your fellow. Sounds an awful lot like something Jesus said, doesn't it? It sounds an awful like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He kind of flips it in the obverse. So it's like two sides of the same coin. If it's hateful you, don't do it to somebody else as opposed to do unto others. So that you can see Jesus is, okay, kind of leaning, it seems, in Gamaliel's direction. And so, but that, so that group of people comes on and are ascended. Here's some other, just briefly, some other teachings of Hillel. Do not judge your fellow until you're in his place. The sort of his own awareness of his own insufficiency, his humility is expressed this way. Don't trust yourself until the day you die. So aware of his own sinfulness, aware of all that stuff. Whosoever destroys one soul, it's as though he had destroyed the entire world. And whoever saves a life, it's as though it's he had saved the whole world. A name gained is a name lost. In other words, don't seek after your own name. Where there are no men, strive to be a man. So stand out. If, there, if, there, if there's weakness among you, then, then you be that other person. And then this one, which sounds an awful lot like Jesus, and it sounds an awful lot like Paul, right? My humiliation is my exaltation, and my exaltation is my humiliation. It seems like Jesus, maybe, yeah. Maybe he's in the school of Gamaliel, is what it sounds like here. But that's not actually the case at all. So what happens is, is Jesus comes in in the Sermon on the Mount, and everything that happens after that People are going to be listening to him and they're going to try and figure out which camp he's in. Is he going to be in the Hillel camp that's going to be sort of gracious and um, soft? You know, soft within context. I don't, I don't mean like throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of soft and saying, oh, that's not actually a law. That's not actually a law. We can ignore that. We can ignore that. But what, he's, what Hillel did was he interpreted it more generously and graciously than the house of Shammai, which is going to interpret things very strictly. And in fact, if, if the 
it's it's like this this idea of putting a fence around the law. It which go, kind of goes back to the garden actually, because when the serpent asks Eve, "Did God really say?" She said, he told us not to eat from the tree that's in the center of the garden, nor touch it. That's Shammai. <laughs> that, that's, that interpretive school is to say, eating, uh, we've, we've got to broaden that. And we've got to make it so that, no, don't even touch it. And that's what that, the, and the real legitimate reason to interpret the commandment that way is because we want to make sure we don't transgress. And so that's sort of the Shammai school, which is actually in the passages we read, don't commit adultery, okay? I won't commit adultery. I will not do that act. Jesus said, if you have it in your heart, lusting after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her. Hmm. Don't murder, you've heard that, right? Yep, heard that. Know exactly what that means, don't kill anybody. Jesus says, yep, um, bar's actually a little higher than that. Don't hate your brother. Don't be angry. So it's that sounds more like Shammai when he teaches. And so what, what they had a problem with all the time was Jesus would say things and he would teach and you'd think you had him pegged that he's this. And then he would say something else and you go, well, he's not that. He's this. That sounds more like something Shammai would say. So you see this tension between those two things. And so what Jesus does is he's not affirming one of those schools or the other. Neither is he condemning one of those schools over the other. He's saying, here's the way to interpret this. This is the way to do this. It's a balance of both those things, but it's not up to you to decide what that is. I'm telling you what it is. You, you don't have to strike the balance, but what he's saying is you have to, if you're a Gamaliel follower, at some level, you have to stop being a Gamaliel follower. And if you're a Shammai follower, you have to stop being a Shammai follower, not to go from one to the other, but to follow me. Because everything points to Jesus, and it must point to Jesus. So when he teaches these things, from the beginning, he's a challenge to everybody. I don't know anybody who likes a challenge. Everybody would prefer it if you didn't challenge, and everybody would prefer if you have two sides, that you take one of those two sides, not that you'd blaze your own path. Nope. Jesus and Judaism, the, here's the way it works today. You got to be either this or you got to be that. You can't be either or because you're wishy-washy is what it sounds like to us. Because my side's not going to like you if, you if you don't seem gracious enough. And the other side's not going to like you if you don't seem strict enough. And so Jesus carries down that middle path. And he's raising the bar for this person and that person. And so when the Syrophoenician woman comes, you know, she comes to Jesus pleading for her daughter to be delivered from a, from a demonic influence. And Jesus pushes her away and says, I'm here sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And she says something else. And he says, is it right to give the children's bread to the dogs? And she said, even the dogs get the scraps on the table. And Jesus says, you got it, baby. <laughs> and you're going to get what you're seeking because you're, you're desperate enough to deal with this. And he knew that in advance, and, and he, she ends up receiving what she wants and receiving affirmation from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But when he does that, there's a challenge there. If you're a follower of Shammai, you're, yay, good work, Jesus. This is exactly the attitude. We knew we were supposed to treat outsiders this way. And if you're a follower of Gamaliel, you're hearing this, you're going, what? 
I thought he was on our team. Jesus says, no, I need everybody to be on my team. I'm showing you a better way. I'm showing you the only true way to interpret this. So when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he's claiming to be the Torah. He's claiming to be the word of God incarnate. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Wait a minute. If I'm on this team, then I see truth in a certain way. If I'm on this team, I see truth in a different way. And Jesus is saying, nope, look at me. I'm the truth and I'm the way, which is to say, I'm not just the truth. I don't just sort of expound the word by being the way. I'm showing you what it means to do that. And the life has two applications too. How's your life going to look? And then I am life. It's a profound statement that Jesus makes. If you ignore that verse and if you ignore everything else, then you have completely missed Christianity. And I'm saying that for a reason, <laughs> because there are a lot of people and a lot of churches that deny Jesus's words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, if you don't accept that, then you've got a problem with the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what I'm trying to say with this is that, that Jesus is making a claim to be unique in the universe. I'm not this team or that team. This is the team to be on. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he's writing in, in that particular passage, he's saying, hey, don't say I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos. Because Paul says, here's the problem. You're worldly. As long as you're doing that, as long as you prefer one preacher over another here, we have a bigger problem than sort of this rivalry between two teams. No. Jesus didn't come to create two teams in Christianity or 20 teams in Christianity. I mean, I know people who will follow a particular preacher and won't listen to anybody besides them. And if you don't love their preacher, they question your Christianity. Well, here's the bad news. Paul would question yours. And he would say, you're so immature and you're still so worldly. If you want to follow one man and their words and to the exclusion of everybody else, and if you look down on your brother because they don't follow your guy, then they're not the problem you are. And Paul would say, I couldn't give you solid food because of things like this. So this preference thing, Paul raises to a really high place. We don't do that. <laughs> That's not the way people in our world today think about that because we exalt that man, that woman, and we don't even realize we've done that. And when we do, then, then Paul says, what you've done is you've reduced yourself. You've proven yourself to be an immature Christian because you're still not on Jesus' team fully because you're more on that man's team or that woman's team. There's nothing wrong with having teachers that you love. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you follow those people to the exclusion of other people, then there's a serious problem because now that person can lead you astray by degrees because you've attached yourself like a sheep to a shepherd. And if you've done that, then you've detached yourself from the good shepherd. And so Paul understands the danger of saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. And it goes back again to what his head rabbi, Hillel, said, and that is don't trust yourself until the day you die. Well, if I don't trust myself until the day I die and I'm the leader of the rabbinic school, 
then that should flow down, right? If everybody else can't trust him, then, then I shouldn't trust him. But after he dies, it's all in place. And so you'll know whether that person taught truth all the time or not after that point. So Jesus comes and he's dividing waters by, by saying no to the teens. Paul sees the, the, the potential harm that that can cause not just the Corinthian church, but every church and says, no, we can't do this. And so as I mentioned a little bit um, prior to going on the air, that one of the issues is Apollos is from Alexandria. Alexandria was the city that was sort of like the center of all learning was there, the greatest library that existed in the day. The Alexandrian library was there and they wanted to collect every great work and have it there. The one thing that they didn't really have was uh, a copy of sort of the, the, the Old Testament in Greek. And so they brought in 70 Jewish scholars and said, here's what we need you to do. We need you to translate the Hebrew into the Greek. And the tradition is, is that they were all exactly alike. All the translations were, ends up being exactly alike. And so what we know that today is the Septuagint because there were 70 people involved. <laughs> and so there were 70 put together what's known today as the Septuagint, the, the definitive Greek translation of the Old Testament by Hebrew scholars. So that's Alexandria. But Alexandria was different from both Gamaliel and, or Hillel and Shammai in that, that the, the prevailing interpretive thing in, uh, in Alexandria was this sort of allegorical, madrashic kind of interpretation, which sometimes it would take you know, every word figuratively, not literally. And so you end up with these things that, it, at least for John, when I read these things, it's like, what are you talking about? How did you get that from that? And, and no, sometimes you got to read the plain words of Scripture. It's just going to have plain meaning. I mean, th this is how ridiculous sometimes it can get. This happened in my lifetime, in my hearing in a church that we were in. <clears throat> we brought in a new pastor, and somebody said, "Are you? Um, do you read the Bible literally, or do you read it figuratively? And he said, oh, I definitely read it figuratively. Because the problem is, if you're a literalist, when Jesus says, if I'm the vine and you're the branches, you've got to believe Jesus is a green leafy substance. I don't actually. I'm not a moron. <laughs> I, I understand figurative language and I understand literal language. But when literal language is literal, then it's literal. I'm the way, the truth, and the life means I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus says, don't commit murder, he meant it exactly that way. Sorry, I'm rolling my eyes because I remember that day and remember I'm leaving. This is no longer my church that day because of that. So anyway, so Apollos comes from sort of the opposite of that in some ways. And when we first meet Apollos in Ephesus, he comes and he's, he's expounding and arguing with the Jews in the synagogue. And Priscilla and Aquila, who were the founding members of the Christian community in Ephesus, come to him and say, can we talk a minute? He says, sure. And they said, well, tell us about sort of the baptism of the Holy Spirit kind of thing. Because he only preached sort of up through the baptism of John. He only knew certain things. And so they, they said, he said, what are we doing? <laughs> they said, oh, come here. You need the Holy Spirit. If you're going to argue fully, you're effective now and you're a powerful speaker because oratory was a great thing of Alexandria. And so what we see is, is that that changed. His power changed when he comes into contact with Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And now he comes to Corinth and he's doing the same thing. He, he 
he's an apologetic expert for the church. And so he speaks forcefully. And in the previous week, last week's lessons, what we read was Paul says, I came among you humbly. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I didn't come to you with great eloquence and all this. And now we know when we get to 1 Corinthians 3, we know why he says that. Because somebody else has come who is eloquent. And everybody prefers eloquence. Everybody prefers to be entertained. And Paul said, I wasn't there to entertain you. I was there to talk about Jesus Christ and him crucified. But that was accompanied by a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So while I might have been not much, the Spirit was. And that was your witness to the truth of my words. Not great oratory, not lofty rhetoric, but a display of the Spirit's power. And so that's the other thing we need to constantly be looking for. But we need to be careful. We need to be wary in all things. We need to be wary of our friends. We need to admonish them and reprove them whenever they would come to us and tell us about this great preacher that they don't want, they, they, you should listen to him and love him. And most of the time I have to say, I don't love that person. I mean, he's good or whatever. But, but when people start following preachers and teachers, to the exclusion of anything else, then we need to be concerned for them. And then that can then divide the church. How many times have you seen that happen in your life where churches get divided because a preacher falls? Hillel was right. Don't ever trust yourself until the day you die. We can trust Jesus all the way up to his death. We can trust his life. We can trust his life because of his resurrection from the dead. We know that everything he taught, God validates by the resurrection. Everything he did, God validates by the resurrection from the dead because Jesus is the only one who's been resurrected from the dead. And he was resurrected not because of my righteousness or the accumulated righteousness of the church because it was none at that time. He's resurrected because he is the first and only fully, truly righteous man to have ever lived. And God resurrected him from the dead. And the first truly righteous man who ever lived is a man you can believe in his life, in his teaching, and everything else. If you say he's a great teacher without believing he's also the Son of God, then you're wrong. Because the resurrection says he is the Son of God. He is perfectly righteous. So to say that Jesus is a great teacher, but he is not God's Son, is to deny the resurrection happened. Following him as a great teacher, you know where that'll get you? To a reasonably ethical life. And then hell, because you didn't accept him as your Savior. So my encouragement is to make sure that you're always following him. If you hear a great preacher, if you hear great teaching, whatever it is, always, always know for yourself by your own study in the word of God that it's true or it's not true. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can know that. We can always know that, but only if we ourselves are in the Word. We can't allow other people to be in the Word for us. Uh, I had a guy who came to me one time, well, not one time, he came to me every single day. Every time I saw him, he would come to me and he would say, John, what's the Word for today from the Lord? And I would tell him whatever the Lord was saying to me. And then he would say, do you know what so-and-so says or what so-and-so says or what so-and-so says? Every single time for about a year and a half, two years, I mean, a long period of time. And I finally got sick of that. And I said, what does he say to you? He says these things, but he's saying them filtered through other people. 
I didn't realize you were Roman Catholic, that you needed a man to hear from the Lord for you. You should be hearing from him and then validating. These other things should feed you because he has already fed you. So it's it's our goal. It's It should be at least our goal to, to know the word so well that when somebody expounds the word that we can receive it with joy and gladness or we can reject it if it doesn't fit. And we should know these things. We've been given the Holy Spirit so that we can have all of that. But we also have the word. It's not enough to let other people be in the word for us and trust other people. It's only enough if we ourselves are in the word and hearing from God directly in that way. All honor and glory goes to Jesus, always and everywhere.